0: Hello, I'm Zev Neuwirth and welcome to Creating a New Healthcare. This is a podcast show designed for healthcare leaders who are looking for fresh perspectives, new ideas, bold solutions, and inspiration in their daily efforts to advance value-based, consumer-centric, and patient-centric healthcare. Today we're going to focus on on-demand care. Uh, this is a, an incredibly hot topic in healthcare. It is perhaps the fastest growing sector in healthcare. In fact, uh, in a recent Forbes online article, on-demand healthcare uh, was only second to Uber and Lyft in terms of the Wall Street investment. Uh, the investment in 2017 is over $1 billion in this sector of healthcare. It's growing at uh, over 300% year-over-year. Year, it is growing far twice as fast as the rest of digital healthcare. It is a, uh, what might be considered a silent horse in the healthcare race. So, uh, just to give you a sense of the importance and uh, primacy of this particular topic, and I am delighted, absolutely delighted to uh, have our guest on the show today. Tom Sharland is a colleague who I have heard speak a number of times at national meetings. Uh, I uh, read his monthly newsletter um, uh, on this space, and um, I've had the good fortune of having him consult uh, a number of times for us. So I'm a big fan of our guest today, and, and again, delighted that he agreed to be on the show today. So, Tom, I'm going to ask you to uh, give our listeners a... Uh, a few uh, comments about where you've
1: been in your career
0: and uh, where you are now, and then we'll jump right into uh, our conversation.
1: Okay. Well, thanks for having me, Zev. Um, I usually like to tell people my um, career started with my education Uh, at five years old. My education started on Romper Room School. I spent two weeks on television with the uh, local NBC affiliate in Providence, Rhode Island, with Miss Bonnie. And then my education proceeded to go downhill from there, um, but I probably entered the healthcare space most notably from the the tech world. I was in the tech world pretty much right up until um, the bottom fell out in 19, um, actually 1999, 2000. It was actually March of 2000 when the bubble burst, and I was with a big uh, tech company. Um, And at that time, you may remember, um, the new tech companies were the ones that weren't making any money. I was fortunate to have been with a tech company that was actually very stable. Um, And we sold that company to British Telecom. and, And then I was a hot commodity because I was one of those people from one of the tech companies that knew how to make money at a time when very few tech companies were. Um so shortly thereafter um I uh, did a turnaround with a, a Weather Tech company and then after that um joined a little company called Quick Medics in Minneapolis. We had um it was a turnaround situation on its f- probably fourth board and you know, ump round of funding and they were looking for somebody to help uh turn around things, so they were hiring um, a whole new executive team. Um, one of the things we ended up doing about a year later after joining is we changed the name of this company to Minute Clinic. Uh, we did a deal first with Target, um, and that was going too slowly for our our uh, venture capital partners, so we then turned to CVS Pharmacy. Tom Ryan was the CEO at the time. He loved this idea and essentially ran with it. And today there are more than 1,100 of these clinics around the country. and I think that was really the beginning of um, changing the game in healthcare, as it relates to consumer preferences, convenience, and really forcing the medical community to build its apparatus around the consumer as opposed to around the doctors. Um, And then after the CVS partnership was formed and we our national rollout was well underway. through that process, I learned how much um, traditional healthcare organizations, large medical groups, hospital systems, were going to be deer in the headlights kind of uh, with this whole consumer movement coming down the road. And so, I started Merchant Medicine as a consulting firm dedicated to helping traditional medicine find their way in the face of people like MedExpress or Clinic moving to town.
0: Um, you know, I, I just want to say for, for folks who may not be familiar with this, I, I uh, first actually I, I knew you many years before I actually met you. Uh, I think I met you through the Harvard Business Review, Review case studies that I read uh, about Quickmax and so uh, I remember the first time you told me about your your history and what you had done. Uh, I, I went back to that business, the uh, Harvard Business Review case study, and, and reread it again. Right, you, you, you were there uh my god you you were there at the beginning i mean you're you're i don't even know the analogy uh to to make in other industries but um for me and as far as i understand that really was was the the real beginning of this whole movement and what snowballed and you know i know this firsthand um the growth in this sector is like nothing else Uh, i'm i'm seeing in healthcare today so uh you're a real pioneer how does that feel
1: well um I can't take credit for being there at the very beginning. There were um, a couple of entrepreneurs who were there um, at the very beginning. I actually got there three years later. Uh, the first clinic opened in May of 2000. I didn't get there until January of 2003. But you're right, um, that was Clay Christensen who wrote about it, and it was part of his series on disruptive innovation. And that was back in 2003 when he wrote about it. and. Um, he really did uh, recognize it as something that could and probably would change healthcare. care. Um, what really was different about when I got there is that um, up until that point, QuickMedx was cash on the table. They did not participate in insurance, and the um, the founders just um wanted nothing to do with traditional payers and you can understand why they felt that way but their timing was way premature this was in a market that was 93% insured still very traditional PPO type of um payment so by choosing not to participate in insurance they were essentially throwing away you know about 90 or um you know, a a huge available market. Um, So their available market was about 7% is what it boils down to. And that was really the crux of the problem. So we decided to go ahead and um, engage with the payer community, um, which was not easy in itself to get them to start paying for people getting care in a grocery store. You can imagine what that was like. But I I must say the self-insured employers in the market in Minneapolis were hugely helpful. Um, they recognized the potential of this and pretty much put a gun to the head to the local payer community and said, You're going to cover this.
0: So, so yeah, so, Tom, let me ask you this. There, there you know, in, in every story, in every journey, there's there's the challenge, the problem, you know, the obstacles we overcome. What, what in healthcare was missing? What was wrong? What was not uh, available? What was the problem that was present that? created this opening for this entire burgeoning uh, you know, sector of healthcare. What's going on there?
1: Can you well, explain I think, it? I think the biggest thing was that we were entering a time when it was unusual for any household to have anything other than um, two parents working full time. And, um, we were also entering an era when, when kids were scheduled up the wazoo. And so you had dual income parents with kids who, when somebody got sick, it was absolute chaos in the household. And, um, people were looking for just any solution other than calling, trying to get through to their doctor's office and being told that they couldn't be seen for two days. Um, And so these two entrepreneurs um, got together and said, there's got to be a way to do this. And so they went to their, you know, their family physician and said, what would you think if we were to create a company? And so it turned out that there really were three partners, a doctor and two uh, entrepreneurial um, minded guys who came up with the concept and tapped into this chaos that was happening in most households around the country. Um, and it
0: just started taking off. So, so, so there, so there was a, a clearly a, a pain and a need, uh, and this is a daily issue. You know, I have kids, and I, I you're speaking to me, I know exactly uh, that pain, what that's like. Uh, how about for adults? I mean, was it was it the beginning uh, of this, and and is it still? Uh, largely around uh, the needs of, of parents with children, or is it also something for adults who are experiencing this situation?
1: Oh, it definitely is for adults. In fact, the, the way it works um, in terms of um, adoption is the parents try it first. Um, it, what we observed was that the parents learned of this concept, and they decided to check it out themselves. Um, and in sort of seeing how it worked, they realized, you know, these ear infections that our kids get or the sore throats, it's not rocket science, and this idea that, you know, physicians, you know, to this day still talk about, oh, but what about, you know, if this complication happens or that complication happens and, you know, a nurse practitioner doesn't recognize it, you know, and To my knowledge, not a single one of those complications has ever happened, and no one's ever died. Um, So I think what what ended up happening is the parents tested it. They loved it, and so they started bringing their kids. And this was also a time when the nurse practitioners that we employed um, were really seasoned nurse practitioners who were looking for a way to practice that was different uh, where they didn't have a physician looking over their shoulder. They could learn more about how insurance worked. They could learn more about, um, ordering inventory. They, they literally ran the clinic. Um, but the other thing they did is they started developing a following. So you'd have, you know, a, a clinic in Coon Rapids, Minnesota, staffed primarily by two different nurse practitioners who shared the majority of the shifts. And, um, they just started developing a following and word spread in the community that this phenomena was happening. And all of a sudden you you know you'd have very busy clinics starting to take away uh visits from local doctor's office who were not at all sensitive to the needs of consumers.
0: So so and that that, that, that really leads me to ask you this this question. So it's you know great. The parents love it for the kids. Then they start using it for themselves. Uh, the obvious pain or need is, is there. Uh, convenience, access, uh, not having to wait uh, a day, take off a lot of time from work. Uh, it it uh, you didn't mention this, but it's it's you know probably lower cost. And so let me let me ask you this: what is the what is the underlying you know, from a business perspective, from a conceptual perspective, you know, what was the reframe? What was the underlying shift in creating this solution? Uh, and, and what's what's what do you think is sort of the key to why this worked? Yes, there was a problem and there's a need, but the solution is there. And and I just wonder if there's there's something that would help me or help us understand this a little bit more. The secret to the clear. Your success and continuing success and accelerating success of of this uh, offering across the country?
1: Well, we should probably back up a second because, um, you know, when we look at the on-demand space, um, what I've talked about so far is the retail clinic space, and that's the minute clinic idea. Um, It turns out that that particular business model is... Not anywhere near as successful as the urgent care business model. Um, And the reason is that the scope of care with retail clinics is more narrow, uh, predominantly geared around upper respiratory um, illnesses. And you can throw in there skin issues and UTIs, but it's pretty limited. And um, because of the upper respiratory part of that, it's highly seasonal. Whereas with urgent care, you have all the advantages of the retail clinic in terms of walk-in and open seven days and evenings. Um, But add to that the fact that they do have x-ray on site. They do suturing. um, They have a wider scope and therefore it's not anywhere near as seasonal. So, um, I think we'll continue to see rapid growth in the urgent care part of this business. And um, that's one that um, really, I think, is getting all of the money and investment that you spoke of. Um, Whereas in the retail clinic space, I think we've seen that level off. And um, 93% of those clinics are really owned by five different retailers. And uh, they're really not in it for clinic operating profit. They're in it for other reasons, namely prescription drug uh, traffic in the stores. Whereas the urgent care centers really do see clinic operating profit, and that's why they're attracting private equity money. And it's become almost a sub-segment of um, the hospitality industry, and it's mimicking the hospitality industry. And I think it's attracting investment from private equity that's involved in the hospitality industry. So you have this amazing cross-section of investment and smart money coming out of the hospitality industry, really changing the game completely in healthcare. So, so this
0: a couple of questions there. So number one, and, and thank you for making that distinction uh, between the retail clinics, uh, like many clinics and um, and uh, the urgent cares, which have a much broader scope of practice. And so do you have any numbers uh, in terms of the size of the urgent care uh, market or the numbers versus what you, what you described as leveling, leveling off numbers of the, of the minute-type clinics, those retail-type clinics?
1: Sure. So in the retail clinic space, there are probably around 1,200 total clinics, Um, and they're in, uh, most of them are in CVS stores. CVS by far has the most clinics. Mm -hmm. Um, the next, uh, group would be Walgreens, uh, Kroger and Rite Aid, who are sort of the, uh, the next, you know, two, three, four players. Walmart, for the most part, despite all the publicity around Walmart doing this, um, has really started to move out of the market. They're um, kind of a non-player at this point. So that's the retail clinic market. On the urgent care side, uh, we estimate just over 10,000 clinics, and that has that number probably has doubled in um, the last five to seven years with, um, with investment coming from private equity, uh, from health insurance companies. Uh, from health systems, so large hospital uh, system organizations. Um, And then you still have kind of at the bottom end, new entrants, which is typically emergency room physicians who are burned out uh, in working shifts in the emergency room, but they're high net worth individuals, and they invest in opening a single urgent care. And then that goes well, and so they open a second one or a third one, and then eventually private equity comes along and buys that platform of two or three clinics and rolls it into um uh, you know another platform that they've started so that's kind of the way the investment goes but it's um it's a, it's the urgent care space is fast growing it's a little over 10,000 clinics um and I'm um, and you know we're seeing anywhere from uh 200 to 300 new clinics um Every year, and that's among the ones that we track, which is uh, those with seven or more clinics. Um, you know, there's that whole space of onesie twosies that's almost impossible to track because there, you know, there have to be a thousand players out there. Um, but the Urgent Care Association, um, you know, in partnership with us, we kind of come together and compare notes, and um, that's that's kind of what the market looks like.
0: Mm-hmm. And so, how do you have any sense of that that long tail? Those the smaller groups, less than seven. Do you have any sense of how? I mean, is it could it be a thousand, five thousand?
1: Yeah. um, So the the ones that are like six or fewer, um, that represents about sixty percent of the industry. Um, So Mm -hmm. it's significant. It's so the vast majority of the clinics are in that smaller category. Right, right. That's, that, that and is, and so it's unlike the retail clinic industry, which is um, not fragmented at all. The uh, the urgent care industry is highly fragmented.
0: Yeah, I didn't realize it was it was that large, and that small, that long tail of small owners was uh, was that uh, that much of the market. Now you mentioned the hospitality industry. And so, so can you crosswalk that for us and explain what what you mean by that? And
1: sure. Well, in its um, in its most basic sense, um, if you think about walking into uh, a clinic in in your typical primary care clinic, think of that as a restaurant where you must have a reservation or they don't see you. Um. And so think of a restaurant that takes some people with reservations and some people without. Um, In all cases, there's typically a reception desk. There's a front door. There's inventory that essentially is distributed. In the case of clinics, it's uh, exam rooms. Um, And in the case of um, restaurants, it's tables. In the case of hotels, it's rooms. You have high cost labor, you have low cost labor. Um, you have space that needs to be renovated on a fairly regular basis in order for it to be presentable and comfortable. Um, you have a waiting area. <clears throat> so um, that those basic factors uh, are just in terms of the physical space and the basic workflow is similar. But then um, you start looking at some of the way technology is entering both of those spaces um, you have restaurants now where you can get yourself a reservation online, or you can even get yourself into queue if they don't take reservations. So in the case of an urgent care clinic, um, they really don't take appointments, but you can now you know, grab your mobile phone and look at a given urgent care operator in a certain metro area and see all of their clinics on a map and hovering above each of those clinics on the map is the current wait time. And you click on the clinic that has the shortest wait time that happens to be, you know, closest to you or on your route home or on your route to work. And get yourself into queue so that by the time you get there, they're ready for you. And, oh, by the way, they'll text you uh, updates if, you know, there's, there's some change in the status. So, well, you know, um, I... We're seeing you know, tell all me. of this crisscross, both the hospitality industry and the clinic industry.
0: Yeah, you know, that that, that uh, technology that you were just mentioning, uh, could you just uh, fill that picture in a little bit more? So there's a technology which you've been promoting. I don't think you own it or created it, but where uh, if I'm, I'm, uh, I want to go to the urgent care and I'm at work or at home, uh, driving around, I can go online and... Find, as you say, find the urgent care with the shortest wait time. But then I can actually get in line. I can actually register through my uh, smart device, through my iPhone, and uh, and actually be in line, be in the waiting room while I'm out and about. Uh, and they'll, you know, they basically say just show up, you know, you know five ten minutes before your scheduled appointment. But you're already in line. You don't have to wait extra. You don't have to go to the back of the line. You are in line, and I can go shopping, stay with the kids. Stay at work. Uh that's that's an amazing uh you right. know uh yeah, and, you
1: know, people probably recognize that technology from Great Clips, the hair salon. Um that company is one of the companies that we tell our clients about. Um and it's basically queue management technology. There's a company called QLess, uh there's a company called Clockwise, um, and all of these companies are starting to participate in um, in the uh, walk-in clinic market. So, so it sounds like I mean this
0: is this is wild. I mean, right? Who would have thought that healthcare would be taking lessons from the restaurant industry, the hospitality industry, great clips, haircutting, um, and yet, it's it's. Uh, I mean, this is complete. This is huge. Reframing, uh, redesigning, reorganizing in a way that is not typical in our legacy healthcare system. Um, it, it's. Uh, I mean, do you, what's your? I mean, is is what's your thought about that and, and the whole? And and I am interested in the business model too. What's? Can you say a word or two about that?
1: Well, I think what's happening is. Um, it used to be that the way we ran clinics was the way physicians wanted to run the clinics. Mm-hmm. And, um, that's changing dramatically. And I think it's, it's very difficult for your typical practicing physician to get their head around because it feels like, um, medicine is losing, um, it's kind of losing its way. But it's really not. I mean, it's it's basically saying all we've worried about up until now is clinical quality. And we've decided not to pay attention to anything else. And, and kind of one of the things that I realized is that physician practices, once they all started moving to an RVU type of form of payment. The the people running those practices, you know, you know, you typically have a medical group and someone, you know, unfortunately happens to be elected uh, to be the one who's the practice leader, but they're just as busy as everybody else. And they, they don't, they can't think strategically. They can't think outside of, you know, the clinical side of the practice. So we went for so long with nothing being done on you know what it is that we can do to better serve the patient outside of the clinical realm um, and so what has happened and it's grown up around this on demand space primarily because it's low acuity it's not rocket science so you're not dealing with things that are putting patients at risk and you know, we're talking about things that have fairly straightforward clinical guidelines. Um, So it's enabled us to start to think out of the box about the patient experience um, the way these other industries have been thinking about the customer experience for decades. Um, So we've started to invite speakers, you know, from these other industries to our annual symposium. And, you know, by far, they always get the highest reviews uh, when we send out the surveys about what you thought about our speakers because they bring so much relevance to a space that up until now has been empty um, in terms of what we pay attention to.
0: You know, what about, so, so it sounds to me like we are what we're adding to traditional healthcare to the legacy healthcare is on top of treating the patient, because clearly this is still medical care, and there is there are guidelines, evidence-based medicine, and there are issues of quality and safety, and um, I know that, uh, having uh, been deeply involved in setting up urgent cares and, and being responsible for them. Uh, so all that is still at play, and uh, uh, you know, I think I'd be happy to have you say a word about that, but on top of that, what we've Augmented that care with uh, uh, is uh, is 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 the customer and the customer orientation and customer service and all that goes with uh, understanding the patient not just as a patient uh, because they still are but also as a customer and uh, that that seems to me it doesn't it doesn't I, to me it's not that we left the patient and just thought of them as customers I, I think it's both and so I just want to give you a chance to respond to that.
1: Yeah, it's it's both, but um I also am very sensitive to the clinical side and the fact that we still have a long way to go on the clinical side in this space. Um you know, just take uh sore throats. Um, th- there's a fairly straightforward clinical guideline, you know, choose where what your source of that guideline is would be it ICSI or uh the American uh um Academy of Family Practice. They're straightforward guidelines about how to deal with a sore throat. But um, the number of clinics I walk into um, run by large medical groups and health systems that follow guidelines, um, actually have their doctors follow the guidelines, is still pretty small. So from a clinical perspective, even in this low acuity space, the way that we measure outcomes is still pretty poor. Uh, in fact, you know, one of the things I witnessed were these um, physician practices and medical societies who were all upset because Minute Clinic was considering coming to town. They'd hold these meetings and, you know, start throwing mud at Minute Clinic and Minute Clinic would pull out its um, its data on tracking all of the things that they track. Um, because, of course, they were using an electronic medical record way before most of these other practices were. And, you know, literally, I would see them pull out the incidence of a um, of uh, of rap- positive rapid strep test by practitioner. And they would show things like one practitioner that was one standard deviation outside the norm on positive rapid strep tests. And they would point to it and say, this is where we would know that we had a practitioner who was either reading the test wrong or was colorblind? And, you know, the people in the audience were kind of wowed by this. And, and you know, these l- legislators and um, civic leaders would then turn to the traditional medical groups and medical societies and say, so what is, show us your data. <laughs> and they'd say, well, we don't have any. And, you know, that was the end of the story. Men at Clinics started to look pretty good at that point um, because they tracked everything. You know, including their prescribing rates, and although I said these um these pharmacies are in it for the prescriptions, those are not illegitimate prescriptions um they they these these practices uh retail clinic practices typically have much lower prescribing rates for antibiotics because they're so tightly controlled so on the clinical side, we still have a long way to go um, even in this low acuity space
0: well and when you say that. You're, you're just to clarify. You're saying that for for traditional care as much as for urgent care, because what I'm hearing you say and, and, and tell me, uh, just for clarification, are you saying that uh, the urgent care space uh, is from a from a clinical guideline standardization perspective is uh, is ahead of and in fact better in these lower acuity type of conditions because they've been tracking this and following it and um, really uh, demanding the, the uh, standardization of care along evidence-based medicine more so than traditional provider practices? Or do you think it's about the same as provider practices?
1: No, I think it's better. And I think it's largely driven by the fact that they are measuring everything, not just clinical things, but practice management issues, door-to-door times. Um, they're measuring, you know, provider times and um, uh you know, so that the, the doctors can't say, well, my patients are sicker, so it takes me longer to, uh, to, to do certain things, or I can't see as many patients. You know, if you're, if, you're, if you're measuring it against a whole bunch of peers across many hours of practice, you know, that doesn't hold up anymore. So it's all about measurement and improvement, and this is, um, this is a space where that can be done. Um, whereas, you know, in your higher acuity complex situations, which I know you have studied a lot, that's, you know, not as easy to do, but in this space, um, you know, that's amazing that the, the customers, the patients, they get it, they get that it's low acuity. They get that it's, you know, not necessarily rocket science. Um, and so, that, that's one of the reasons they're coming. Is that we there's it's simple. It, we're just taking so much of the complexity out of it. And I got to tell you, it's only going to get simpler. There are people looking at this space, and you know, the, uh, you know, these um, uh, uh, people who just look at workflow are starting to break this down into what I expect in the next three years is going to be so simple and. Um, so well done that I, I I'm predicting that um, people just for low acuity stuff just won't even call their doctor anymore. It's already happening.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, it's it's absolutely happening. The numbers are are showing that in in a big way. So so I just want to pause for a second because I I think this is tremendous that uh you know the the urgent care space focused on these lower acuity conditions. Um, you may call it not rocket science, but it still makes up a tremendous percentage of uh, encounters uh, for patients to seeing primary care. I don't, I don't know if it's 30 or 40 percent, or uh, in that range of encounters that are these lower acuity, common conditions. Uh, again, yeah. I agree with you; they're not chronic disease management or more complex conditions or multiple complex conditions. But it makes up a significant percentage. Do you, off, do you know offhand what what percentage of general medical care or primary care would be considered uh, in this space? Is it? Yeah, 30? so
1: the breakdown, um, the CDC doesn't really do it anymore, but they, they had um, produced for many years um, an analysis of medical care uh, in, through office visits. They've done it through the emergency room as well, but in the office visit space, in the U.S., it was pretty consistent that there were about a billion, that's one billion with a B as in boy, visits per year in the United States. Of those, about half were primary care visits. Um, and uh, of those visits, um, it was about a 100 million visits that fit the retail clinic scope and about 200 million visits that fit the urgent care scope. And so um, so if you think about it that way, I'll say it kind of with different math. It works out that the retail clinic um, scope sees somewhere around 300 visits per 1,000 people. And the urgent care scope sees somewhere around 600 visits per 1,000 people. So retail clinics, said another way about a third of a visit per year per person. Urgent care, about two-thirds of a visit per year per person. Whereas in primary care, at 500 million visits and 300 million people, you know, it's probably more like 1.2 visits per year per person. And then when you look at it, cross-sectioning it with age and demographics, that varies all across the board. Obviously, more visits for kids, um, Fewer visits for you know young adults, particularly young male adults <laughs> who don't like going to the doctor, um, and then obviously more visits uh, with um, uh, the aged uh, population.
0: Right, right. So the, right. So depending on the age, you, there's a different penetration of the sector uh, compared to traditional primary care. So so I just want to go back to this 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 uh, what you've introduced and and you know I've learned from you in this conversation that. It's it's uh not that it's not just that uh the urgent care space and this on demand healthcare space is much more customer oriented. Um but from a clinical perspective, it's it's not just it's not inferior and it's not just as good. It actually for this these conditions and this segment of care, uh clinical care, it's actually better because they've been applying um Rules and, uh, and technologies and approaches that are of measurement and improvement that have been used in other industries so that it is much more standardized, much more evidence based. Um, and, and that's, I think a lot of folks would, would find that surprising. I think a lot of traditional, uh, physicians and, and administrators in healthcare are probably unaware that, uh, because of the focus, because of the application of, uh, of these uh, Of these uh, other industry type of approaches uh, to improvement and to measurement uh, and to standardization that you 're actually getting better more standardized uh, less variation in the clinical care itself, so that to me that's that's a pretty remarkable uh, concept to wrap your your brain around
1: yeah, and I think that um There's certainly much more awareness among the medical community and the primary care community today than there was on that issue. And I think a lot of that is driven um, by Minute Clinic, uh, who has these affiliations with large health systems and, more specifically, the medical groups of these large health systems. And they are now meeting with them regularly and reporting on um the patients uh from their group or um uh that they are seeing in in very specific numbers and in th- and through that reporting are uh doing a pretty good job of showing um a lot of the data not just who it is they're seeing and and by the way that's because minute clinic has moved to epic as their emr so that you know when minute clinic moves to the community they're using basically the community based emr and they're working, you know, with with people like your organization at at, at um, <clears throat> um, Carolina's Healthcare, at the Cleveland Clinic, at Advocate, uh, you know, all over the place, where um, they're actually sharing live medical records with um, with these patients' primary care physicians, yeah. and so yeah. there's a fair amount of education that's going back and forth.
0: Yeah, Tom, you know, just you know, in terms of the the growth of this, the percent of 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 the market share in primary care that this is taking, and, and increasingly so, the fact that it's demonstrating you know very sound, evidence-based, standardized uh clinical care in this domain of care, you know, a physician provider, uh, traditional office, traditional integrated liver network might look at that and get defensive about that. Um because I, th- I, think, I think what we can't do anymore is kind of look down our noses and say that care isn't, isn't as good because clearly it is, and maybe better clinically, and also from a customer perspective, access, convenience, cost, uh, clearly better. So it's a win-win for everybody. But uh, what, what would you say to uh, you know traditional primary care providers or integrated delivery networks about this? It, you know, if they start to get worried about, hey, you're, you're taking up my market share. Uh, and get defensive about it. What, what, you know? Do you see this as a, you know, a, uh, a real competitive threat, uh, or do you think there's some coopetition here that there is actually a synergy here?
1: Well, I mean, when we go meet with these groups, um, every one of them is different in terms of their um, their competitive situation. Um, you know, the first thing we look at is how capable are you of competing. So um you know the, I I often um talk to these docs about the um these these types, these incidents of care. And I ask them, um, you know, when someone comes in with a sore throat, do do you have to swab the throat? Or can you have uh some standing orders for somebody to swab that throat and and do the strep test? Do you have to be involved in it? <clears throat> and Do you have to force a patient to schedule uh, uh, um, an appointment to do that? And ultimately, what you get out of them is no, no, no. So I look at them and say, so why are you doing it that way? What's preventing you from doing it that way? And the the ultimate answer is that they just don't have time. This is that issue of they're all on RVUs and there's nobody who they, they just simply can't afford to have a headcount dedicated to innovation. And unfortunately for them, um, that's a problem. So, and unfortunately for many, it's too late for them to recover. But there are many, and and a lot of them from the pediatric community who have innovated and um, who have essentially done just what I said, which is to allow patients to come in without an appointment. And they've found ways through various workflow and standing orders to make it possible to have patients come in and be seen and not wait um, and come in and out for really, you know, what uh, amounts to three or four or five types of conditions um, where there's there's no reason that you can't see these people without an appointment. <clears throat> so that's that's the first thing I say. Um, The second thing I say is you need to sort of get over the issue of I really like having these acute episodic visits because it breaks up my day. You know, what what that says to me is this is about me and my day. And um, I I mean, I had this conversation with a physician last week where literally this was an issue and she couldn't believe that this is the direction that things are going, um, and you know, I I, I'm, I I try to be as understanding as I possibly can because I know this is hard, but um, but it is the reality. It it doesn't matter anymore. Um, it's not about you, the physician. It's about the customer, and you know, we named our firm Merchant Medicine for a very intentional reason. It's a very in-your-face name for a consulting company to a doctor merchant you're, you're telling me I have to be a merchant and I'm saying yes you have to be like every other merchant worried about your customer having a great experience so they come back a second and third time and if you don't you're going to lose them to somebody else because that's the way of the world for everybody else and now it is for you too
0: you know, it's, it seems to me that a couple of things. One is the these, you know, hospital systems, um, uh, integrated delivery, delivery networks, large provider groups, uh, inventory provider groups. They have, there's two options. One is to uh, do what you describe, well, maybe three options. One is to do what you describe, which is open up urgent care on-demand access. Number two uh, in their workflow, number two is to actually open up urgent cares themselves. And a lot of these larger systems uh, are are launching uh, their own urgent cares, and uh, I'd like you to comment on that. And and the third is, you know, it seems to me that um, that traditional providers, given the, the the lack of primary care providers and the need for primary care providers, uh, given the amount of education and experience they have in managing chronic disease and complex chronic disease, it seems to me there is a bit of a symbiosis here. That uh, maybe maybe our physicians should be focused on the more complex, uh, you know, the chronic disease that requires long, long-term relationships with patients, a lot of behavior change, uh, often with episodes that become more complex, and then of course moving into the more complex situation. So, so to me, it doesn't seem like uh, this is as much competition as uh, the opportunity to actually enhance value overall. But what do you think about those three choices or those options um, in terms of? Uh, of what uh, hospital systems or, or ambulatory systems or integrated systems can do.
1: Well, certainly the, the latter, the cooperatition, is um, a big deal right now. We're seeing a lot of um, partnerships going on, joint venture partnerships, um, non-equity light partnerships um, as, um, as these newer entities move into a market. They are their brand is not known. It's healthcare, so you know they there's there's a trust issue, um, and so these new branded entities moving into town are looking for someone who they can work with, um, and and the other thing is that there although it seems like there's a threat when you look at those who use these walk in settings. Um, clearly the um the age demographics are somewhat offset um you know it's the, it's a lot of the younger um the younger adults who use these clearly they use them with their kids but a lot of parents are still pretty connected to their pediatricians and if the pediatricians are doing a good job uh they're going to continue to see them so you know, the older adults are not going to urgent care, and a lot of the younger children are not going to urgent care. It's the it's the middle ground, and for the most part, part primary care physicians are not uh, seeing those patients anyway. So um, there's a lot of room for cooperation. And then, of course, if um, if the organization has the wherewithal to do it, they they absolutely should try to do this themselves.
0: Start their own urgent care centers, dedicated yes. urgent care yeah. centers. Yeah. yeah. I, I think you know. I've always I've had a bias, and tell me what you think. That trying to mix the urgent care model in a traditional primary care practice in the same you know location is not as efficient uh, as having a separate urgent care uh, center where you you know you can have the appropriate resources and um, really utilize them to their fullest. And so, do you think that's true, or, or you know that it's, it, it's from a business efficiency perspective? Uh, it's uh, it's better to have separated, uh, segmented urgent care, uh, even if it's within a integrated delivery network?
1: I think the, the co-location issue um, gets a bad rap, but I think that's overblown. I've seen it work extremely well with an urgent care embedded in a um, kind of a, a, a medical office building complex. And mm-hmm. um, but obviously, you know what you're competing against are these new operators who are opening in high visibility commercial retail areas, sometimes with a freestanding building. Um, you know, if you go to the Mid Atlantic area, Patient First has these bright green roof buildings that you can see a mile away, and you know that it's a Patient First. And, you know, they're investing a lot in um, in the visibility and um, you know, the dirt and the building that they go on. Um, and that's part of their marketing. And that's where they choose to put their marketing spend. But it can be done in both ways. Um, I've seen it work extremely well in a medical office building um, because it's a trusted hospital system brand. Um, but obviously, there are operators out there who are opening freestanding branded urgent care centers like MedExpress or Patient First or American Family Care, who are, you know, crisscrossing the country with these things.
0: And do the urgent cares that are affiliated or branded with, uh, with trusted uh, integrated delivery network hospital system names, are they, do they uh, have an advantage uh, over freestanding independent urgent cares?
1: Um, we think they do right now. Uh, we did some consumer research and it and it clearly shows that consumers have so long as the brand has a good reputation, I mean there are some hospital system brands out there that don't. But if it has a good reputation, they are clearly uh they have an advantage. And um the disadvantage is that they just move so slowly. Um and uh sometimes let the doctors kind of drive the decision making and how they execute which um, is usually a mistake unless they're, you know, physician executives who who are accustomed to really running things like a CEO would run things as opposed to um, thinking, you know, first and foremost clinically. Um, You know, and and again, the clinical part is (laughs) extremely important. But the analogy I use is that you don't walk into a restaurant um, worried about the food poisoning you and you die it's there's an assumption that the food is going to be good and the food is going to be safe in this space. That's the way it is. People walk in with an assumption that you're competent and it this is going to be safe. Um, so that's kind of the, the way it works. I did want to make one comment on cost because there is, I think, an assumption out there that this is lower cost care. And so there there are some arguments and some that are actually valid that we're, um, through this on-demand space, adding cost to the total cost landscape in U.S. healthcare, And that's true to the extent that we're actually creating more utilization because it's so convenient. But um, the, the thing to remember is that between retail clinics and urgent care, add all of those visits up. And the total cost of all of those visits on an annual basis adds up to one tenth of one percent of the total healthcare economy in the United States. One tenth of one percent. So, whatever additional utilization these people are talking about, valid as that may be that they've measured it, um, that percentage of additional utilization is. You know, even that—that's so. Now we're probably talking about one thousandth of one percent of additional cost. But what we're getting is a completely changed landscape in terms of how we respond to consumers, um, which I think in the end is going to save money um, and drive a mindset of of driving care to where it is most appropriately delivered, both economically. And um, from the perspective of convenience,
0: yeah, no, I I think that's a great uh, point. That the any potential increase utilization because of convenience is really a a fraction of a drop in the bucket compared to the total healthcare costs. And also, you know, we know that uh, a lot of ED utilization, people going to emergency rooms, a lot of that can be diverted to urgent cares, and so it actually can save money. Not only for patients and their families and employers, but it actually uh, saves money for total cost of care uh, in the healthcare system. So, so let me let me ask you this because we, we need to wrap up in a in a couple of minutes here. But where um, where do you think urgent care and retail care? Where do you think this is going? And particularly, I'm interested in your thoughts about uh, as as virtual care. Uh, in, in the utilization of virtual care increases as data analytics improves, uh, do-it-yourself medicine, uh, attachments to uh, smart devices, phones. Where, where, do you think that there's, there's going to be some nibbling um, at this market? Do you think it's the market's going to, urgent care is going to learn how to augment itself with this? What, do you have thoughts about where the next three to five years is, is going in, in, in the urgent care space?
1: Well, I think um, the next three to five years is probably going to look like uh, we're going to see the emergence of the first uh, truly national brands of urgent care centers. Um, That's a difficult thing in healthcare just because of state regulations. So it takes a long time for these private equity backed players or health insurance players to actually build out in every state because every state not only has Um, its own um, set of state health rules and regulations. But every state tends to have a different um, group of payers uh, who are licensed differently from state to state. And so, therefore, the payer rules and regs are different and the payer contracts are different. So to actually roll this thing out across the country is a very slow process. So I think that's what we're going to see over the next few years. I would expect that these players, um, they already are under the radar, um, testing and piloting, uh, virtual care in, in the two traditional forms in this space. And that's the, um, <clears throat> the, um, the uh, real time uh, or what's referred to as the synchronous approach, um, as well as the asynchronous. So um, just a little bit about that. The the synchronous approach is essentially real-time telemedicine, usually with some sort of camera or visual of what's going on between the patient and the doctor. Um, And then the asynchronous are more of these algorithmic uh, uh, online systems where you're answering a number of questions, and those are being registered uh, um, and moved to a provider who looks at this algorithmic equation and makes a judgment call of whether or not it it um, fits within the scope of that virtual care. And then, you know, they will, they'll come online um, either through chat or, or maybe connect with you in real time at that point. But you're still, the initial collection of data is a store-and-forward asynchronous thing. <clears throat> Those two are being piloted by a number of um, providers, and I think we're going to see that evolve. And then I think when you go out 10 years, that's when we're going to start to see the smartphones, the, the, the smart devices start to have some, um, some peripheral type of attachments, uh, either built in uh, or plugged in, where literally you may have a home um, digital acquisition, medical di- digital acquisition device kit that you plug into your phone and you've got a mini digital otoscope. <laughs> um, that somehow you're guided around um, a medical provider on the other end on where to put it and um, how to set it so that they can see what's going on. I think that is going to happen um, and it already is.
0: So what uh what takeaway, what nugget do you have for healthcare leaders around this? And I think there actually have actually been, for me at least, a, a few nuggets that you've already gathered and, and shared with us today. But uh, is there any sort of take-home message, uh, any uh, advice, recommendations you would make for healthcare leaders, and particularly as they're thinking about, uh, about uh, advancing value-based care and, and consumer-centric care?
1: Yeah, the, the first takeaway is to is to think in terms of the patient and um, the acceptance factor of all of these things that are happening around us that may feel disruptive, fall into the category of of innovation, because a lot of it is just noise. A lot of it is amazing solutions for which there are no known problems or no known consumer appetite. You know, I hang out on the uh, American Telemedicine Association uh, chat rooms and um, uh, sharing uh, communities. And there are so many people talking about all of this technology. But then you ask the question about what's your patient volume look like? (laughs) And they say it's terrible. Um, So I think that's the first thing is to follow the patient volume and understand where the demand is. The second thing is to make sure that you carve out FTEs in your organization um, who are thinking strategically. Uh, you have to have someone whose mind space is clear enough to be doing that. Those are the two big pieces of advice that um, I give people. The rest of it is blocking and tackling. Can
0: you say, say a word about that second piece again?
1: Uh, the blocking and tackling?
0: No, before that, the, the part about dedicating people to this.
1: Yeah. So um, it's it's that piece of if you're in a medical practice and all you're doing is is seeing patients and all you're thinking about is the clinical side, then you're never going to get your head around what's happening next. You're never going to get your head around how the consumer is thinking and you're not going to have an advocate for the consumer. Um and that's where I think traditional medical practices have fallen down and have gotten so far behind.
0: Yeah, you know, this is I I, you know I had never in the years that I've been following you and listening to you, um I had never asked you why you named your company Merchant Medicine, but I, I think uh it's clear to me and the listeners now that uh it's you know these This is not about the technology and the bells and whistles. It's really about listening to your customers, understanding their needs, and uh, meeting those needs. And you need to pay attention to that uh, in a similar way that you would pay attention to the clinical part of care. And, in fact, I think they're not uh, opposed to one another. It's actually a very complementary relationship between the two. And, in fact, good customer care could actually improve uh, patient care. So, and that's uh, one of the lessons I'm going to take with me when uh, i uh, listening to you today. Any final words? I I, um, I, I know uh, I asked some of my guests this question, and I, I know you uh, practice what you preach in terms of health care. You have some daily healthful routines. I want to share with the audience one thing that you do to sustain yourself and, and to uh, have the resilience and energy that you have uh, in, in your career.
1: Well, uh, I, I mean... The two things that I do that I feel actually help. Uh, the rest of it I don't know about, but um, I have I practiced meditation since uh, my freshman year in college, um, and so that's more than forty years ago that I started that, and I still do that every day. And I, you know, of all of the things I do, that's the thing that I wish everybody did, um, because uh, quieting the mind is such an important routine. Um, every day, because it helps us to just just be present to what 's going on around us and the people who are around us and what their needs are um, and also how our minds can just so easily play tricks on us um, when you when your mind just doesn 't stop and it 's constantly buzzing and thinking um, you just need to quiet it down so that you can even recognize where where you your own path maybe heading in the wrong direction. Um and then the second one is really simple. I'm a big believer in planks. <laughs> so I always do my uh my front planks and side planks every day um to keep my core developed because you know I'm going to turn 60 in the next 12 months. And uh, you know joints and soft tissue you know from the core are really I think that's going to be what holds me together. So those are the two things I do that I swear by.
0: That's that's great, and uh, every time I see you, you you look great, and uh, I I'm, I'm gonna actually I I you mentioned that to me a week before, and I did start doing planks. So uh, uh, thank you. So so we're gonna we're gonna end here. I want to again uh, thank Tom Charlin from Merchant Medicine for being a guest uh, on this show. Uh, learned a tremendous amount. And to the listeners, uh, I want to say this is Zev Newerth. And again, thank you for joining us in creating a new healthcare. I think we accomplished our goal today of looking for fresh perspectives, new ideas, uh, bold solutions, and inspiration in our daily efforts to advance value-based consumer-centric healthcare. Take care. Good health.